When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, July 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. A little bit of another special edition of the show. We do have one big debut to discuss. That, of course, was the debut of Marlins pitcher Max Meyer over the weekend. Some minor league injuries to update you on. Some level changes coming out of the Futures game over the weekend. But a lot of things that we're going to talk about are focused on things that we got to see from the Futures game. Some notable performances there. And, of course, a few things from the early stage of the MLB draft, which is wrapping up today, I believe. Actually, I think it wrapped up on Monday. But nevertheless, we get to it. And we start with the debut of Max Meyer. Talked about him, of course, on our Friday episode when we were looking at waiver wire pickups. And the bid range seemed to land around 10% in a lot of the leagues that I'm in. There were a couple places where he went for a bit less. The debut line wasn't great, mostly because of... uh, some trouble, and I think in his final inning, a couple long balls in the performance, but he had five strikeouts against one walk, went five into third innings through 79 pitches. And I think it's always with young players more about the process than the results. With pitching, we get so much more information that I feel like we can we can build off of going forward. And thankfully, Al, I've got the numbers from Eno Saris's pitching plus model, which gave Myers overall arsenal. A 117.5 stuff number. 100 is average, so it's really nice number for a starter to see that the first time out. Location came in at 103.4. The overall pitching number was a 104.7, so very strong across the board. Someone that would be, on those numbers, typically rostered in most mixed leagues because you just don't see everything above average for a lot of pitchers, especially young pitchers. And things that people can see on the public side, the pitch mix. It was a 49% slider usage for Max Meyer, but it makes sense because he had a 41% called strikes and whiff rate on that. So a big CSW on that pitch, threw the four-seamer 35% of the time, and went to that changeup about 15% of the time. That was his worst pitch in this particular outing by CSW. But three pitches, pretty good control, some strikeouts along the way, and it looks like some more opportunities in the second half. So now that you've seen one start in the books, What's next for Max Meyer, and and where do you think he sort of falls compared to other pitchers in the pool as we sort of rank him for the rest of the season? He is, in my mind, after this debut, still viable in 12-teamers. The problem is, is that at this point, you probably can't get him there anymore. So it's just a question of, is is Max Meyer a pitcher who needs to be uh, universally rostered? And the, the thing that does help out with those kinds of decisions in really shallow leagues is that... I think it, it it always pays to roster high upside players because if they don't work out, there's always a really good um, set of players available on waivers when when a league is shallow. So, so you know, based on that argument, I would say that Meyer is 
is viable in a, in any kind of league going into the second half. And also, DVR, to get to the numbers that you were just walking us through, I'm really encouraged by that um, those last two numbers, location and the pitching, given that he did give up a couple of homers, got barreled three times, all the plate discipline metrics, uh, which are you know, probably aside from the, the pitching plus numbers, um, those are probably the ones that we can put the most stock in after one start, just because they're on a, a per pitch basis. But still, after one start, you know those have to be uh, really not weighted very heavily. But those numbers are really encouraging too. The overall CSW very solid for Meyer at twenty nine point one percent. Good numbers both on the width and the uh, called strike side. Um, a decent number of chases at thirty percent. So. Like all these peripheral numbers look pretty good. Uh, so that I probably wouldn't have been discouraged from recommending him in shallow leagues anyway, but this makes me feel even better about it. Yeah, even though the ratios look bloated coming off that debut, if you're in a league where he is still out there, a shallow format, I think it is worth pursuing Max Meyer. The projections are pretty modest on him. I think for the most part, you see low to mid fours ERAs. You see whips above 1.3. I think he can beat those ratios in part because of the home park. And again, he's got three three pitches that he can throw, but I think having a good slider you can command is one of the best things you can have as a foundation as a, a big league pitcher right now. And Max Meyer appears to have that. So curious to see how quickly he can adapt and adjust to the big league level. I think the other thing that's really interesting, because he lost some time earlier this season to an injury, I don't think he's going to run into an innings limit at any point in the near future. I think maybe you're talking about the last week of the season, depending on how things go. And it's the sort of thing where if you look at Meyer, he had 111 innings last year between double A AA and triple A. So I imagine that puts him somewhere in the 150 range this season. He's only thrown between all of his starts so far, 66 and a third innings. So if he's so efficient that he's getting deep enough into starts where that workload becomes a concern into September, well, you're probably very happy with what you got between now and then. So I think that's the other thing that works really well here. Just kind of the, the byproduct of lost time is that Max Meyer doesn't seem likely to get shut down early. A lot of other young pitchers we've talked about throughout the first half of the season on this show, they will be managed more carefully, especially if they're on playoff-bound teams. Spencer Strider's a good example of that. I think George Kirby could become an example of that, depending on where the Mariners' trajectory lands over the final few months of the season. So just something to be mindful of here, too, as you think about Meyer and his potential trade value. And if you've already got him on your roster, he might be a little more stable from a start-by-start basis than some other young pitchers. Uh, some injury news to get to. Cade Cavalli left a recent start at AAA due to a blister. Fortunately, nothing serious there. I do wonder if the Nationals by need would possibly put him in the rotation. I keep kind of filing him away as more of a 2023 guy, Al. Uh, clearly, uh, someone that will have a an opportunity probably early on next season if, it, if he doesn't debut before the end of 2022. Yeah, he's been a hard one for me to... Uh... To, to figure out in terms of a, an estimated time of arrival. So I, I think that's a good point that uh, the Nationals may be calling up quite a few prospects uh, over the last couple of months and Cavalli uh, being one of their best. So I wouldn't rule it out. But yeah, I've been sort of leaning the same way as you, thinking that more likely we'll, we'll see him in 2023. 
incentive to start him now seems pretty low given the state of things in DC, and that could get a lot worse in the next few weeks too if they do find a a suitor for Juan Soto before the trade deadline on August 2nd. Uh, Austin Martin has a wrist injury, still no official diagnosis. He does expect to return this season, that information coming from the Athletics' Aaron Gleeman. Martin is one of those players, Al, that I am really down on after what we've seen so far this season. I think there are still some prospect lists where he's in that range of being a top 50 guy. Maybe this injury is the thing that will unfortunately push him out of that range, but it's been a rough season for him. His first full season in the Twins organization, spending that at double A so far, hitting 249 with a 378 OBP, but only a 313 slugging percentage. And that's just a, it's such a stark lack of power at that level. And especially for a guy that's not young, Austin Martin's already 23 years old. So I'm just wondering if he's the kind of guy that's going to get the bat knocked out of his hands on a regular basis once he gets to the big leagues. Even though the plate skills look good, I just think it might be all dependent upon speed in the long run for Austin Martin becoming a viable fantasy contributor for us. Yeah, and we've seen with many other prospects that come up where we're looking forward to to the stolen bases that they do have to hit a certain amount. Uh, to to get those steals. So uh, yeah, with Martin, not only being uh, a little bit old for the level, but repeating it uh, after playing there in 2021, both in the, the Blue Jays and Twins organizations, that uh, the, the in some ways, I was going to say lack of progress, in some ways the backtracking, uh, particularly in terms of power, he has brought that strikeout rate down, but it's not really translated into any sort of production other than OBP. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's very disappointing and, and definitely makes me uh, very, very skeptical about his his chances in the major leagues. See if he you know, gets to AAA. I'd say the way that he's hit so far this year, it's probably not going to happen this year, but something to watch uh, perhaps in 2023. I wonder if maybe Jonathan India could be the the cautionary tale of, of not writing him off completely, though, because I went through this with Jonathan India and Keeper in Dynasty Leagues a few years ago. I had him in a pretty deep Keeper League, decided not to protect him as a minor leaguer since there just wasn't a lot of power as he moved through the red system. Part of that was injuries. That's obviously part of Martin's story right now, too. These guys both control the zone really well, and at least with Martin being 22 for 26 as a base dealer, we need steals pretty much everywhere. You can still kind of talk yourself into the possibility that the power shows up later. It's just harder to believe it based on what we're seeing with the results thus far. I mean, I think a lot of people were more on the side I was with India. It was like, yeah, he he might be a big leaguer. He just might not be a very productive fantasy big leaguer. And I think we could at least ask those questions with Austin Martin. I think the other key difference here, Martin is hitting the ball on the ground a lot this season. He was at about a 45% ground ball rate last season between his time in the Jays organization and then after the trade to Minnesota, both at double A. 54.4% is a really high ground ball rate for someone that was supposed to offer power in the long run. So I'm keeping an eye on that too once he eventually gets healthy. Some other level changes and items of note to pass along. Gabriel Moreno sent back to Buffalo. That was right after we recorded last week. The Jays are just getting healthier behind the plate. So if they have another injury in that group, he'll probably get a chance again to come up before the end of the season. Jonathan Aranda, option to AAA Durham. A tough player to figure out right now just because when he's in the lineup, as we talked about him at the end of the week, he's getting chances right in the heart of the order. But we've seen this pattern before with the Rays. If you remember Nathaniel Lowe a few years ago when he was debuting with the Rays, 
got a run as the cleanup hitter and ended up back in Durham for a little while. It's just kind of the way they manage that roster, unfortunately, which makes Aranda a particularly frustrating player to try and squeeze onto your roster in mixed leagues because you think you have someone who's going to start four or five times in a week and have a prominent role, and then you find out at the beginning of the week, nope, he's actually going back down and someone else is going to take that spot or a combination of someone else's will take that spot for the near future. I still think it's kind of interesting, though, because we're at this point in the season where players like Aranda could be traded at any time or players that are blocking him could be traded at any time as a result of all the player movement we're likely to see between now and August 2nd. So if you have the luxury of holding him, I think he's worth holding on to, but he's not a must-hold sort of player given the uncertainty. Yes, and I don't know, I don't see a, a trade that unblocks Aranda in Tampa Bay being very likely. I, I'd be really surprised if the Rays traded Brandon Lau, uh, but maybe it's it's not something I should completely completely uh, write off. But uh, my, my initial reaction to that transaction was just Rays going to Ray, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we've seen this with uh, Vidal Brujan, and uh, not so much this year, but uh, late last year with Tyler Walls, uh, Taylor Walls. And um, they just they they do like to mix and match, and uh, I know you and I both would love to see Iran to get more of an extended run, but it's really hard to find any sort of signs that suggest that that's coming at least this season. Yeah, the only place I've got him is a long-term keeper league where he stashes a minor leaguer for now, so I don't have to deal with the up and down in that particular instance. But I imagine if you're in a 15-team mixed league and it's a redraft scenario, he's a very frustrating player to try and roster at the present time. A few other level change-related things. Uh, J.P. Sears back down at AAA in the Yankees organization. He's really just sort of the up and down extra guy in that pitching staff right now. Not necessarily someone you can trust in the long run at the moment, just based on how he's being used. Pirates catcher Henry Davis is going to be shut down for a few weeks. He remains at double A. A lot of lost time, unfortunately, for him this season due to injuries. Freddie Tarnak, who has pitched really well in his triple A debut, is getting closer to the big leagues. I, I wonder, I wonder too, if you look at Atlanta, if they're willing to trade any of their young pitchers, not necessarily Tarnak specifically, as they try and find a way to get to the postseason, because they're among the teams you could look at and say between Strider and Kyle Wright, they may have to go out and find some veteran pitching just to make sure the guys they want in the rotation in October have enough left in the tank to be contributors at that point in the season. Well, I would like to see Kyler Muller either Kyle Muller either come up or get uh, get traded. Uh, because I don't really know what he's uh, got left to prove. He's having an outstanding season uh, at Triple A Gwinnett, and so I think you know, he certainly is is well ahead of Tarnock uh, in terms of the pecking order to be called up. So I don't I don't really see Tarnock as somebody that I'm expecting to be uh, viable in, in redraft leagues this year. I'm also just um, curious to see how he does do in Triple A uh, over the. The remainder of the year because in repeating double A, the strikeout rate was down, the walk rate went up. He had a uh, an ERA above four, so they, you know the peripherals were decent. The overall ratio is not great for Tarnock, and um, it's just a bit of a surprise after a, a really huge jump in twenty twenty one, both at high A and double A. Yeah, I think of the big league ready pitching that they had sort of 
stockpiled this time last year. I believe it was Bryce Wilson was the only one they really moved in all the trades that they made at the deadline. So it could be someone like Tarnock who's on the move. If he gets to a less crowded organization, his chances of staying as a starter, I think, are a lot better. But AAA should tell us a lot more about his chances of actually making it as a consistent big league starter. There's some significant reliever risk in that profile in everything I've seen about Tarnock to this point. Um, Taj Bradley, who actually started the Futures game for the AL team, was promoted to AAA to start the second half. Really exciting player. We've talked about him at least once in recent weeks, and I suggested that maybe he could be this year's version of Shane Boz, just someone that by the end of this season ends up popping up in some role for the Rays. Maybe it's multi-inning relief. Maybe it's a handful of starts. But I thought he looked pretty good in the Futures game, even though he wasn't necessarily overpowering. Yeah, and uh, we have talked about him, like you said, once recently and at least once a little bit earlier in the year and uh, a nice uh, scoreless inning performance for Bradley in that uh, Futures game. But one thing that I I said, I think DVR, the last time that we discussed him when you made that that comparison with Shane Boz, and then I, I countered with saying, well, but Bradley Bradley's had some really nice stats so far throughout the minor leagues, but not the kind of strikeout rates that Boz had that were just really, uh, really eye-popping. But I noticed something that I, I didn't really pay attention to that last time that we talked about him. And he's you know, he's had a, a sub one ERA uh, this year, double A, last year, both at, at A and high A. And rather than just kind of writing that off as, as fluky, looking that behind it are some really consistently low BABIP rates and behind those really low line drive rates. And that is probably, if you go through the stats on anybody's player page on Fangraphs, that's the stat I'm most likely to disregard mm-hmm. is line drive rate. But he's been consistent. Uh, rookie league in, in 2019, 14.4%. Up a class A, 14.8%. High A, 13.2%. This year, double A, 15% even. I mean, that that's kind of incredible. You don't usually see that. And I have to wonder if there is is something to it and something in the way that Bradley either sequences his pitches or the, or the movement or shape of the pitches that makes them so deceptive that hitters, while they may not whiff on them at an extraordinary rate, they just can't square them up. Mm-hmm. Because it's at this point, I think you have to look at that, a total of 228 and two-thirds innings going back to 2019 and see the same result over and over again. Yeah, so I think what could be happening here, we did get to see him for just the one inning in the Futures game, and I put a link up Saturday to the StatCast version of that box score. It was just four seamers and cutters for Taj Bradley, but the thing that I've really started to think a lot more about over the course of this season is the impact that having multiple fastballs can have on the quality of contact that a hitter can make, and it makes a lot of sense, and sometimes you talk about as a four-seamer, two-seamer, because it's coming out of the hand in terms of velo, they look very similar. And then, of course, the late movement, either the ride on the four-seamer or the the little bit of fade on the two-seamer or the sink on the two-seamer, those things change how well a hitter can actually square the ball up at the very last second. And I think being able to, to guess right on multiple fastball pitchers ends up being pretty difficult. And if you command those things really well, that goes a long way. So I think with the four-seamer and the cutter, you could have some kind of effect like that. Uh, so maybe that's part of how he does it. I think command seems to be a strength too, though. I mean, we've seen that walk rate tick down at every single stop, which given that he's been young for the level everywhere he's pitched, I think that just makes Tosh Bradley really impressive. And I think 
you, you probably look at him and just say he's he's one of those really high floor pitching prospects that has enough ceiling for us to still be excited about him in mixed leagues. And if the stuff ticks up one more level, then you could start talking about him as a, a future ace. I don't quite expect Bradley to be the next Shane McClanahan, a, a future top five, top 10 fantasy starter, but you don't have to be at that level to be good. I think just having the polish that he is showing to this point is really impressive. Now, I do think the the innings concerns here might be the thing that keep him in a smaller role if he gets that chance with the Rays later this season. You do the back of the napkin math here, and you look at the total combined innings. It's about 103 innings and change last year between low A and high A. He's at 74 and a third innings. So he's got some room in the second half, but you start thinking about five or six innings at a time, that's probably going to put him close to where they want him to slow down in the early part of September, unless they taper him off with a bullpen roll. Totally possible they'll use him that way. I just don't know if it'll be a meaningful fantasy role for Bradley this season, even though the long-term value, I think, is pretty clear in what he brings to the table right now. Let's get to some other players from the Futures game, though. Bobby Miller started for the NL team, and he was electric, as expected, right? He had four of the five fastest pitches thrown in the game, topping out at 100.3 and showed four different pitches in that first inning. Did he throw 23 pitches to get through the inning? I think there was an error and a couple things that that's extended the inning a bit longer than expected. But in that case, I was just excited because it meant we got to see a little bit more of Bobby Miller. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, a little bit of a control issue for, for Miller, but struck out the side, uh, like you said, looked looked electric. And uh, very exciting prospect we've been excited about all season long. Uh, you've talked about maybe seeing him in maybe a, a non-fantasy relevant role, uh, maybe coming in as a, a reliever, but uh, be excited to see him. And, and from a fantasy perspective, I think he'll, he could make a big impact in 2023. Yeah, definitely excited to see what he does as he continues to advance and similar sort of problem where you just wonder where's the limit for innings? How are they want to, how do they want to get him there? Uh, but I could see the Dodgers possibly using him in a really interesting way once the uh, stretch run gets here. Uh, Yuri Perez, I mean, he looked as good as everybody could have hoped. Only through 10 pitches, cruised through his inning, showed us four pitches, showed us a four-seater, a curveball, a changeup, and a sinker. They all looked good. They all looked commanded really well. The downside, of course, of a showcase game is you want to see more and Doing all those things for one inning is as much as you can ask a player to do, but I feel like that outing is only going to push this hype train along even faster as it pertains to Perez. Yeah, I think there's just the question is, do we have a reasonable expectation for him to to pitch with the Marlins this year? And as great as he has been uh, at Double A, I'm not, especially since the Marlins go have gone into the break, falling a little back further in the wild card race. Um, I don't think that they're totally out of it. I think if they go on a good run right out of the gate, that maybe that enhances the chances that we we see Perez. But if they kind of stay where they are or fall, or fall further back, I'm not sure what incentive the Marlins would have to bring up a, a 19-year-old prospect uh, at the end of the season. Same kind of thing with the innings, 78 innings combined between low A and high A last year, 62 innings so far for Yuri Perez. And of all the pitchers we're talking about, one of the youngest guys of all of them, probably going to have the most strict workload restrictions of the bunch. So I think that's also the thing that could work against them as well. I'd love to see him in Miami this year, but not stashing him in redraft leagues, hoping that happens. I think where you draft him in 2023, if this season ends with Perez healthy and continuing to pitch really well in the minors, 
that's going to be a fun sort of debate. Do you take that chance on him as an SP4 type and hope that he comes up right away and delivers even more than that? Because it certainly seems possible with the uh, the impressive arsenal that Yuri Perez is working with right now. Emerson Hancock got into this game. I had to I had to jump out and I didn't get to see him actually pitch. So I saw the first part of this game and I didn't see Hancock. I'm curious uh, what you were able to see from him. Uh, well, not a much, not a lot either, because I was only able to see what was in the highlights. I got to see his strikeout of Zach Veen uh, and caught Veen looking, uh, made him look pretty silly. But uh, this is an inning, a perfect inning for uh, for Hancock. Uh, three strikeouts, uh, getting Zach Veen, Mark Vientos, and Jordan Lawler. So pretty nice trio of prospects. Grant, it's a futures game. They're all going to be good prospects. Uh, but just not, you know, not the pitcher in this game you necessarily would have expected that from. Uh, he's not had big strikeout rates in the minors so far this year. Double A Arkansas, twenty three point five percent strikeout rate. Uh, Hancock's also missed some time, uh, particularly in twenty twenty one, with some injuries. So uh, this maybe raises his profile a little bit. Uh, maybe, maybe at a level that's not commensurate with what he's actually done in the minors. Yeah, another guy that I have a hard time getting a good feel for whether or not we'd actually see him this year. I think because of those injuries last season, it was only 44 and two-thirds innings in games during the regular season. 41 innings so far at the AA level. Curious to see if he at least sees AAA briefly before the end of 2022, but a really impressive outing with that uh, striking out the side. Jason Dominguez had a pretty interesting day. I saw him drop a fly ball and then promptly homer. In his next at bat, it was the longest hit of the game at 415 feet. It was a, it was a tank. He, he got a hold of it. And he was actually promoted to high A for the start of the second half. And when we've talked about Dominguez on this show, it's been in the, the kind of the open question of in the current landscape of minor league production, you know, how much do we worry about lower level strikeout rates? So with the promotion, Dominguez leaves the low A level with 27.5% K rate, drawing a lot of walks, 14.2% there. Popped the nine home runs, stole 19 bases, certainly deserved the promotion. 36% better than league average. I just think that strikeout rate in particular is probably the thing I'm watching the most closely as he continues to see more advanced pitching. Sure. And that's improved. So is the walk rate this year. So that's that's encouraging. If he, you know, you see a rate under 30 in today's environment, it's definitely something you have to pay attention to, but not especially worrisome. I think if it, it stays or goes back up as he climbs a ladder, then obviously that that's a concern, but uh, a good, a good foundation to build on. Corbin Carroll looked as fast as expected as someone with a 70 grade on his speed would look. So I, I thought that was just encouraging to see because we got to see him lay out a hustle double early on in the game, got on base twice, doubled and actually walked, let off, I think for the NL team and, Corbin Carroll, for me, is one of the most exciting position players in the minor leagues right now. Really looking forward to seeing him debut probably early, very early next season with the Diamondbacks, probably on the opening day roster if what happened this season is any indication of how teams are going to handle the highest-end prospects going into next season. Uh, the other thing I saw that was really interesting, it made its rounds on Twitter really quickly, Mason Wynn broke a stat cast record with a 100.5-mile-per-hour throw to first base. He's a shortstop in the Cardinals organization, was a two-way player initially upon being drafted. So if you're wondering where the arm strength came from, that partially explains it. And he's young for the level right now at AA, but there's still some questions about just how much Mason Wynn is going to hit as he continues to see top-level pitching. 
Yeah, I mean that's something that has come up in the um, in the in the scouting reports, and also when you look at what he has done at Double A, it raises some doubts. But also you, you factor in that uh, he is just twenty years old, and that uh, because he is close to league average, uh, it's sort of young for the level. That uh, you know, maybe we can we can worry a little too much about uh, the the hit and particularly the power tool. For, for Mason Wynn. But yeah, I think what that highlighted, that uh, stat cast uh, uh, record-breaking throw highlights is that Wynn definitely uh, will have a place in that Cardinals defense. So uh, that that may speed his his uh, arrival in the majors and uh, just keep an eye on how the hitting progresses. So I'm guilty of the, the constant checking of Twitter during this particular game, but as soon as Mason Wynn made that throw, there were a bunch of people in my timeline that just said, can we get a stat cast reading on that? Because I, I had the same reaction. I, I kind of looked like, wait, what just happened? That something about that throw seemed weird. It, it just it looked looked like a different sort of throw. It seemed like the camera was almost like not moving the way it normally does, tracking it. So I was not surprised to see that that was a a missile from uh, Mason Wynn. But he's so young for the level. I think because he was a two way player, I think we want to give him a lot more. Uh, time to kind of figure out what he's going to be as a big league hitter. And the Cardinals, you know, their double A team right now, it's so interesting because they also have Jordan Walker there. And Jordan Walker just turned 20 back in May. And he doesn't look like a 20 year old. He's a big guy. Uh, they had him mic'd up, big personality too. I just, I had, I came away just like, wow, like Jordan, Jordan Walker at 20 is more mature than I am at 37. I don't know about that, but uh, I think, I think it's true. He's probably getting. He's probably going to get to the majors faster. He, he will get to the majors before I do. It is definitely true <laughs> at this point. And, you know, compared to Mason Wynn, uh, Jordan Walker, much more than holding his own so far at double A with a 126 WRC plus, showing some power, stealing bases, controlling the zone really well. Actually has lowered his K rate compared to where it was at high A last season. And he's walking a good bit too. So looks like a really special player. Uh, it's led me to start to say, hey, if, if the Cardinals are interested in making a move for Juan Soto, I think they've got a few guys that are either in the big leagues or not that far from the big leagues who are clearly impact players. Obviously, Nolan Gorman, who's already up, is one of those guys. Jordan Walker is one of those guys. Mason Wynn's probably another one. They could probably put together a pretty enticing package if they wanted to try and, and make a move for one of the absolute best hitters in baseball. Let's move on to the MLB draft, Al. I think this is just a more of a philosophical conversation. I mean, you and I, we're not on the road. We're not watching these guys uh, throughout the spring the, the way Keith Law and other people in this industry do. If you want to know a lot more about these players, you know, especially on The Athletic, read Keith's stuff. It's part of the subscription, theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. You'll get the full in-depth scouting reports. But I think you can sort of group new players in the player pool into four categories, right? You have your high school hitters, you have your college hitters, you have your college pitchers, and you have your high school pitchers. And I listed them that way because I think that's about the order in which I'm typically interested in those players by group in dynasty leagues. Obviously, there are exceptions and ranking them against each other is very difficult. But part of this exercise is Hey, look, if you're in a mid-season draft and you're in this situation, I know score sheet leagues do this. There are certainly some traditional dynasty leagues that have a mid-season draft for the players that are new to the pool. You have to decide relatively quickly, who do you actually like the most? And I'm just curious, as you start to think about a strategy for something like that, how do you prioritize players that you really haven't had a chance to see for the most part? How do you decide 
what direction you want to go when decisions like that can be really impactful for you in the long run. Well, I rely very heavily on people like Keith Law and uh, the writers at Fangraphs and MLB.com and all the various uh, prospect and, and dynasty sites out there uh, because they know they know more than I do. Uh, and also just you know by the fact that uh, Drew Jones, if I had the first pick in the say the score sheet supplemental coming up, and all these draftees are are in the pool, uh, I think I think they may have to sign first. But in any event. Um, because Jones was going into the draft, I think kind of the consensus best player available. Uh, and he has the potential to have a well-rounded uh, skill set with, with power average and, and speed. He'd probably be the the player I would target if I had that first pick in a supplemental. But uh, yeah, in terms of, again, going to, you know, the more philosophical question. I mean, it is just looking at what the, what the crowd thinks out there. Um, analysts that we've we've uh, trusted over the years and uh, who you know who stands out i always think it's tough because you know someone in keith's position is evaluating them from the perspective of big league value and so much of big league value is where do you play are you going to mm-hmm. stay up the middle and that i think can really swing the value of players on a traditional prospect list a lot more than and someone like you or I or fantasy players would would need it to. So I think part of the trick is figuring out when defense is bad enough to be a problem and when it's merely just not good enough to keep someone at a premium position. Because there are some guys, like Tamar Johnson's probably a good example of this among the, the high school bats selected. I think there's a, a consensus among most people analyzing prospects that while he is a shortstop now, that more likely than not, when Termar Johnson becomes a big leaguer, he's likely to be a second baseman. But Termar Johnson has probably the prettiest swing in this draft class and could end up being such an impactful bat that moving off shortstop probably doesn't matter nearly as much to you and I and other people playing fantasy as it does to someone trying to evaluate him for long-term big league potential. Yeah, and at this point, moving off shortstop may actually be a, a plus in fantasy uh, because shortstop has become so deep. Uh, if he moves to second base, that's that's actually a shallower pool. Uh, but also, I get back to something that you asked about that I I didn't talk about, which is how to prioritize high school versus college, and that very much for me is dependent on what kind of shape my team is in and what kind of stage in the cycle my dynasty team is. So. If I'm contending or I feel like I'm close, I just need uh, a player or two to really contend for a title. I will, and I have privileged uh, college players uh, that look like they could maybe get get to the big leagues within a year or so. Um, but obviously, uh, in, in all other situations, uh, definitely going for the, the uh, high school players and going for the greater upside. Yeah, I think the high school pitching group is the group that I mostly ignore. I mean, there's always the possibility that someone comes in and and maybe it's not even the the first round guys that I'm looking at. Maybe it's a third or fourth round pick, someone that had a a big, big college commitment that they were eventually uh, convinced to not uh, adhere to because like Brock Porter, for example, I think is probably the most interesting player from the high school pitchers outside of maybe Dylan Lesko. Dylan Lesko went 15th overall, had Tommy John surgery, would have been a top five pick probably before he got hurt. So you could look at Lesko and, and kind of do the, the Lucas Giolito thing and say, yeah, he's he's a special talent. So after the top bats I like are gone, I would actually think about him if I can afford to play the long game. If my team's in good shape and I'm really not worried about the next couple of seasons, I could understand that. 
But I think Brock Porter, he fell because of signability concerns. But the Rangers, I think by taking Kumar Rocker at third overall, set themselves up to go over slot for Brock Porter. So you can't necessarily look at Brock Porter and say, oh, he was pick 109. So, you know, he's probably really far away. Well, he's no further away than other high school pitchers. He's probably on the same level as first round high school pitching talent. And that could be the kind of thing where you could find a little bit of an edge if you're a little more familiar with the backstories of some of the players, why certain guys fell. Reasons like that, I think, can lead you to a little bit of hidden value. But I just want guys that can hit first. Like, that's my number one thing. And I think with Drew Jones, it's power and speed. I think Jackson Holiday, based on everything I read about him, was expected to be an early draft pick, but back when the season started, wasn't someone that people expected to necessarily go 1-1. Mm-hmm. I'm a little more comfortable, I think, with Drew Jones by comparison if I'm in that position with the first overall pick. And even someone like Elijah Green. We've been hearing about Elijah Green for, I think, at least two years now. At least uh, Ian Khan has been talking about him for a couple of years. So he's just one of those guys that was on the radar long before he was drafted. Uh, I think that that carries more weight than it should for me. But as I learned a little bit more about this player pool and and tried to find some players that were maybe undervalued, I thought actually thought Brooks Lee was the guy that was going to be a a good fantasy player, even if there are some limitations for him in the long run that could, I don't know, maybe keep him from being a perfect all-round real-life player. I think he's he's probably... He's probably a safe player to get to the big leagues. And at a certain point, if I'm not getting the loud tools, I just want the the certain big leaguer because that's at least in deeper leagues the kind of player that comes up and offers something even if they don't if they don't necessarily have the look of a long-term first-round pick. And sometimes you end up getting players like Alex Bregman or Dansby Swanson who were clear they were clear first-rounders, but I don't think people looked at them and expected the impact that they made at their respective peaks. I think they were thought of as just really safe guys that were going to play in the big leagues for a long time, but they weren't necessarily going to get multiple all-star appearances. And and in the case of Bregman, unlock as much power as Bregman did. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I take uh, pretty much a similar pattern too. Like I said, unless I really am in a deep uh, rebuild and just looking for the most uh, upside as uh, possible. Uh, So yeah, players like Brooks Lee, uh, Gavin Cross, Kevin Parada, um, if I if I missed out on Drew Jones, they'd definitely be very high in my queue uh, for any kind of uh, prospect draft coming up this year. Yeah, and I think if I'm at a point where I'm just aiming for ceiling, I do think Cam Collier at one point I think was mentioned among the names that could have gone in the top five. He fell all the way to 18th overall. He started playing junior college this year, and it's a little bit like the Bryce Harper path. That doesn't mean he is Bryce Harper, but just being so advanced for his age, I think will help him advance a little bit more quickly than the typical high school bat coming through too. So things like that carry some weight for me as I'm trying to decide what direction to go uh, chasing players in the minor league drafts that become available this time of year. But you're right. Where you're at as an organization, like your team, are you close to competing? Okay. We'll need a little more towards the more established players. Uh, all things considered though, I think if you gave me that first pick, it's Drew Jones, and I'm not really thinking twice about it. I'd be pretty excited to have him on my team a few years down the road. Premium defender in center field, too, which I think ensures that floor of being a long-term future big leaguer. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. As I mentioned before, you want to read all of Keith's stuff. 
You can check that out if you're a subscriber to The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast gets you in the door for just $1 a month for the first six months. You can read everything else on the site, all of our fantasy stuff, whether that's baseball for the rest of this season or if you're getting into fantasy football, that content is available as well. Of course, a bunch of other sports going through off-season mode, and we'll have a ton of coverage of all of that going forward as well. You can find Al on Twitter at AlMelchiorBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Wednesday. 